Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Thanks for the download today. Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless, and that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both so you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more about the complete HR and payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. Okay, today's episode, I had a conversation with Greg Slamowitz. He's the author of the book, Flip the Pyramid, How Any Organization Can Create a Workforce That is Engaged, Aligned, Empowered, and On Fire. Greg has an interesting background. He started out as an attorney and saw an opportunity to start what is called a professional employer organization, which ironically, Zenium, the sponsor and the host behind this podcast and who I am employed by, is also a professional employer organization. And Greg saw an opportunity to start one because there was a low bar to reach and they had a lot of success, he and his partners. And what he came to found out once he started having some challenges was that it's all a people issue. Some of the people processes and just making sure that they felt empowered and aligned with the mission and the vision. We had a great conversation about the challenges he experienced and a lot of the successes. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode because I'm sure a lot of you are experiencing a lot of this during the great resignation. And you're going to hear a lot from Greg that will resonate with you big time. Enjoy the episode. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places. I would love to connect with you. Enjoy today's episode and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, Greg, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Brandon. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your book. I think you wrote this back in 2013, but it's absolutely relevant as of today. It's called Flip the Pyramid, How Any Organization Can Create a Workforce That Is Engaged, Aligned, Empowered, and On Fire. I want to start from the beginning with this. You were practicing law, I believe, in, I think, New York, and for whatever reason, you saw an opportunity to start PEO. It's a professional employer organization. Tell me about how that came about, that process, and and let's just kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. It really starts with my mother, who told me to go to law school. (laughs) (laughs) And I like to tell people, you can't go to law school because your mother tells you to. You can't practice law for your whole life because of your mother. And I went to law school and I did well and I had a great experience. It really taught me how to be a disciplined thinker and a disciplined studier. And I came out of law school and I was practicing law in New York City in the World Trade Center. And I really disliked the practice of law. I I quickly came to the conclusion I just couldn't do it for the rest of my life. And so I started looking for a business and I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I read an article in the New York Times about a failed PEO up in Albany, New York. And I really have to hand it to this New York Times reporter. She drove up to Albany 
and interviewed a bunch of clients from this failed PEO. And they all lost money, you know, deposits weren't made. They, you know, woke up in the morning and their health insurance was terminated. Their workers' comp was terminated. Probably couldn't make payroll. <laughs> couldn't make payroll. Evidently, the, the founder was a great salesman and a terrible operator. And as you know, this is a business that requires strong operations. Yep. And she asked, you know, the way reporters are, you know, they always couch the question. And she said, you know, this PO is so bad, you'll never use one again, right? And every single burned client that she interviewed said, oh, no, it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and I just read that over and over. And I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, there's a value proposition here. And everybody said, well, we're just going to find a more reputable better run PEO. It was so great getting all this non-core HR payroll benefit stuff off of my plate. So that I just couldn't stop thinking about that value proposition. So I took my legal background and I'm still working at a firm called Brown and Wood in New York City. And I took about a year and spent a lot of time studying and learning about the PO industry and joining Napio and going to a Napio conference. And I found a partner to work with, and we co-founded the company together. And I called my mother up, and I told her I was quitting I'm done. the practice <laughs> of law, and she cried. Oh. Yeah, but it was the right decision for me. I can imagine you were you read that article and you're like, wow, if clients who got burned are still seeing the value proposition of a PEO, like basically taking the administrative burden of being an employer and sort of a plug and play process around human capital. And you're thinking, wow, you know, if you could do this the right way with integrity and good operations, you could be really successful as a PEO. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I hate to say it, but the bar was kind of low. Right. Yeah. When, <laughs> in, in PEOs at that time, because this is the this is mid nineties, I think, right? So that, yeah. yep. PEOs weren't really that prominent at that point, right? That's right. And fortunately the industry has really come a long way, but back then it, the industry was still in its infancy and it was it was literally the the wild west mm -hmm. so you you start ambrose and i think immediately you started having some success like you had you made a couple good sales and then you started having some growth what was that whole process like so was it a couple of years and you really started taking off or was it immediate you started getting some success yeah the first year was pretty brutal the first first year to eighteen months was was a real slog, and then this dot com boom started to happen. Silicon Alley, they called it in, yeah. in New York City, <laughs> and after I would say eighteen months, all of a sudden we we were in the Woolworth Building, and I never forget like we actually had some startup companies show up at our door, knock on our door. You know, they're just all, you know, their t-shirts and hairs uncombed. <laughs> These kids, essentially. These kids. And they're like, we, we just got our first seed round. Hmm. And, and we're, we had no idea. We we're like, seed round? Like, you know, we didn't, what's that? 
And our investors told us to come here mm. and sign up for everything. And that was a really, that was a pretty cool experience. So we started growing after 18 months, we started growing at eight to 12% per month. That's insanity. Like, how do you even keep up your business operations? <laughs> you, you, you barely do. And that went on for 36 straight months. So we tripled every year for three straight wow. years. It was hard. Your, you know, our, our business processes really didn't keep up with our yeah. growth. And it was a real struggle to deliver what we were promising to our, our clients. Fortunately, we made a lot of money. Yeah. And we kept it in the company and we dropped it to the bottom line. But it was that became rough. 36 months of growth. I think we moved our offices a couple of times. We were you know, hiring people all the time, computers showing up every other day. I knew nothing about business. Uh, I was trained as a lawyer. I really wasn't prepared for this kind of growth. A little frustrating. Well, you described even after going through that period where then the dot-com bubble happened. And then right after that, you have 9-11 attacks. And I mean, gosh, you were like right there when all that happened. So going through that challenging time, you ultimately, I think, formed your methodology around flip the pyramid. Talk about that experience and just what you learned from that. Sure. So it all came crashing down. The NASDAQ collapsed. I think that was 2000 or 2001 and 9-11. And we, we gave back over half of our client base, I think, in about 18 months. So we were in a, a free fall. Fortunately, we made a lot of money on the way up, and we kept it on our balance sheet. So we didn't have to uh, worry about keeping the lights on. We built up a nice nest egg. And we had become so confident in the, in the PEO business model. We said to ourselves, we just need to find a new vertical. We've kind of been building this HR payroll benefits platform to service these venture-backed tech companies, and they're kind of going away. And we, we just need to reorient it and find a new vertical and we heard of this vertical called hedge funds. We didn't know what they were. And we started focusing on hedge funds. And we also knew that we needed to do a lot of work internally. And I couldn't understand. I, I was very frustrated. We got our company up to, you know, EBIT, I can't remember, maybe five, six, seven million dollars before the whole thing imploded. It was pretty profitable. And we were exhausted. We we were like, how on earth are we gonna get beyond this high water mark? Like it was just brute force, it was commanding control, it was micromanagement. The senior leadership team was was making every decision mm, exhausting. strategic and tact exhausting. Exhausting. I'm like, how am I ever gonna get you know, beyond that high water mark. And so I just started to read a lot of business books. And then I found this fellow called Vern Harnish. Yep. Scaling up. I've, re I've read that book. Yeah. It very quickly came to me that there's proven business strategies and tactics 
proven organizational strategies and tactics that are tried and true, and that there's really no need for original thinking to build, you know, an aligned organization that can scale. I was going to say, when you read, or I, I think you went to a conference with Vern, so you saw him speak. Yep. What was like your first step after after that? So you obviously had an aha moment, but what was like, if you're going to make this realignment or an adjustment in your organization to try to scale up, what was that first step for you? So that's a really good question because you come back from a conference and, <laughs> yeah. and like, you know, everybody in your company's like, ah, it will wear off. Right. I, I was thinking like, well, this is, we had, I think at the time we had 35, 40 employees and I just can't do this through command and control. So I, I, I started passing out, buying these John Cotter and all these great, books, Dan Pink, and I started getting people. I found my change agents in my company. I'm like, hey, read this book and tell me what you think. And then I took a couple of people to the next Vern Harnish conference. Mm -hmm. I started talking, getting kind of finding some change agents and getting a bunch of people, reading these books, going to these Vern conferences. And so other people around me throughout the organization were like, Aha. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like you're just not drinking some Kool-Aid. There's a methodology here. I'm like, guys, we, we, we got to do this. We have no choice because we're, we're stuck. And right. I couldn't do it by myself. There was just no way. And we did have yes butters. We had people who just wanted to stick with command and control. And it's really hard as a leader. And I tell this to entrepreneurs, when you start off, you're out on the court. You're hogging the ball. Command and control, smartest person in the room. It's really hard to start to let go and go from the court to coach at the bench mm -hmm. to the owner in the skybox. And you, you just can't do that. You have to build you know, the, what I call the constitutional framework, the meeting rhythm, the clearly defined metric-driven quarterly and annual goals. You have to build a whole organizational structure to create alignment before you can stop micromanaging, before you can start letting go of tactics and only focusing on strategy. And it's hard. It's really hard to do. Most, I think most entrepreneurs cannot do it. Well, it's, it is hard because you have to permeate this values and purpose alignment throughout the organization. And you were talking about basketball. So I'm a huge NBA fan and the team I always think of like the San Antonio Spurs, right? They built this like amazing culture where these players, they come in and they know exactly what's expected of them. There's no micromanagement. They, they just play team basketball, and that's what wins championships. That's right. And Coach K. Yeah, right. At, at, at Duke Basketball. I mean, leading with heart, one of the best business books out there. And so a lot of entrepreneurs, and the problem is when you're an entrepreneur and you're micromanaging uh, command and control and very focused on tactics, you have no time to build the organizational structure that is needed to get out of tactics. So it sounds like you, the first thing you really did in making this shift from command and control to really empowering your people is aligning purpose, core values, 
Was that one of the first exercises you did besides, you know, finding your change agents? Yeah, finding change change agents. You have to find the change agents very early on yeah. to help you. Changing an organization, even with 10, 15, 20 people, is not easy. And not everybody's going to make the transition. Does that mean you're exiting certain people that just are not going down the same path as the organization is? Absolutely. And I had, I never forget, I had uh, one fella come into my office and he said to me, Greg, I need to quit. I said, okay, why? And he said to me, you know, I just want somebody to tell me what to do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, those people are needed somewhere. (laughs) Not at your organization though. Not at a growth oriented company. And when you have a growth-oriented company, if you want to win, you need everybody bringing their left brain and their right brain to work every single day. You need everybody engaged. You need everybody working on moving the company forward, you know, out on the court, playing their best game possible. Some people don't want to do that, and that's unfortunate. You were talking about goals throughout the book, and even said that everybody needs to know the score at all times. What did you put in place so that people knew the progress of those goals? And and even going back to the beginning of it, like how do you even come up with those goals in the first place? Is that, is that a group effort? Is it a senior leadership team coming up with goals? Do you have about the team function level? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Defining goals is, is always a hard uh, process. It's mostly the responsibility of the, the senior leadership team. They should be objectively measurable. There's a phrase that I think I got from Vern Harnish, a company with too many priorities has no priority. And that that is senior leadership's job. You have to figure out the top three to five priorities that the company's going to focus on this year. You should have KPIs, super green, green, yellow, orange, red, that tie into those goals. And in terms, they should be kind of forward leading indicators. The whole company needs to get around. You need to have quarterly goals, company-wide quarterly goals, department-wide quarterly goals, individual level that all align with the company's quarterly goals, which align with the company's annual goals. And that's how you get out on the court, play a great aligned game, and everybody knows what the score is. And and these goals can change year to year. It's kind of which muscle do you want to strengthen this year? And you can only strengthen three to five things at, at any one time. One of the best goals that we put in place, and we actually kept it every single year, was net promoter score. Yes. And we were an early adopter of NPS and it transformed our company. It turned us into an incredibly customer centric, hmm. obsessed company. It informs everything you do. That's why I love the like it's a high it's a high arching metric that you are obviously trying to increase. And I love that it gives you all these other ancillary goals that lead up to it as like a leading indicator. That's right. And all your other goals should be driving that NPS score. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I started getting the idea for flipping the pyramid because who's on, who's really, you flip the pyramid 
you know, the top is flat. Who's, who's on top? It's the customers. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of worked for senior middle management, middle management, you know, works for the people above them, the customer focused people and their customers are on top. And we tied compensation to the KPIs around our, our goals. And in fact, we even had people in the sales and marketing group, their comp in part was even tied to our NPS score. Mm, that's really fascinating. And is it just because it's, I mean, it's a team oriented goal or is it because they're bringing in clients that really fit what you guys are trying to do? Both. Yes and yes. They had to be bringing in good clients yeah. and they benefited from, you know, the company hitting all of its goals because then they had a better product, a stronger product to sell. Going back to the, the goals, how did you communicate them to people? Did you have like a, a dashboard of some sort that was very public, team meetings? How did you make sure that you kept goals in front of the people? Because I, I see too often we make these goals and then shove them into a binder and, and look at it once a year. And that's crazy, right? You have to have them up on the wall. You have to have them on dashboards, on people's screens. You need to be talking about them in all the weekly meetings, the the whole meeting rhythm, the whole the weekly, monthly, quarterly meetings all have to be driven, all focused on 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 goals and the the where you are with those goals. It has to be talked about almost every single day. And this is another reason why leadership has to get out of tactics, at least senior leadership, because you need to free up all your time. So you because this is strategy. So you can be talking about goals all the time and talking about core values and BHAG and brand promise. You have to become a broken record. Mm -hmm. And like the CEO, this is really all they should be talking about and yeah. focusing on. The, that's right, because people get so busy with their day-to-day -day tactics, you need to be getting them to look up at the scoreboard. So true. So you talk about tribal culture, and I, I love this concept, this term, because I, you know, with the organization I work at, I feel like we have this, and it feels, it feels good. It empowers people, and it's a great environment to be in. But I, I'm curious, is there a delineation between acting like a cult or a tribe? You know, I think those are, they're, they're sort of different, but where's the tipping point? Yeah. So, so this, I love that question. <laughs> and, and, and so this is how I approached it. And the answer I give people, I, I said, I tried my hardest to turn Ambrose into a cult, but I am just not charismatic enough. I, I just, I'm not, no matter how hard I try, I will never be that successful. And very few people are that charismatic that they will actually achieve ultimate cult status. So go to town, try your hardest. That's I love that. <laughs> and you're going to come up short, and that's exactly where you want to be. This is a, a very small little detail I found in the book um, <laughs> that I had to ask you about. It totally takes us off course a little bit, but you said that it, gossip is sometimes okay for an organization um, and people. Why, why do you say that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I just, that was a, a topic that I became really obsessed with. I came across this small article in the Harvard Business Review, and I haven't been able to find it again. 
and I, it was some professor that wrote a whole paper. The premise made so much sense to me. And this professor's premise was gossip, it's human. It connects us. It connects us. And, and especially if you're trying to build a tribal culture, you want non-hierarchical, cross-department chit-chat and friendships. It strengthened the organization. And his take was, if the organization lacks facts, lacks knowledge, the gossip is going to be misinformed gossip. If you pump the organization full of facts and knowledge, you're going to have informed gossip. That just like made so much sense to me. And so I then, one of my goals as a CEO was, and I tell this to to CEOs, one of your goals should be that everybody in the company knows as much or more than you. So if you focus on just filling your company with the truth and with facts, you know, and that's what NPS does because it just, it's like voice a customer, unadulterated. If you have everybody in the company reading all the comments, it's unadulterated VOC is just coming right through the company. Just a lot of metrics and data. And so if you, if you pump your company full of the truth and with facts, your gossip is going to be informed gossip. And that's going to be good stuff. Communication is huge, especially when you're trying to align your teams. What ways do you continue to communicate to your people about values, other business information, facts, as you said? But is there a way that either senior leadership or middle management should be communicating? Yes. And that's why the meeting rhythm is so important. A very disciplined meeting rhythm. The disciplined meeting rhythm is the nervous system of the organization, and it allows for information to flow back and forth and throughout the organization on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. And you have to build an incredibly disciplined meeting rhythm, and people need to understand that meetings do not belong to any one individual. They belong to the organization. They belong to the tribe. And if the head of the department shows up 10 minutes late, that doesn't matter. That meeting already started 10 minutes ago. And we had everybody, one of the first things we did besides core values was the daily meeting, the daily huddle. And we we got very quickly, we got everybody in the company in a daily huddle. They were stand-ups. It's not problem solving. There are no more than 15 minutes. They have five, six, seven, eight people, maybe 10 maximum. You go around. What's the rock in your shoe? Problem solving is done outside of the meeting. And they start at the same time every single day. There are call-ins or stand-ups on the floor. They start at 9.15 a.m. Like they start. doesn't matter who's there. And then at 9.30, somebody from each of the huddles then calls into the senior management huddle. So we had a very disciplined meeting rhythm. Every single person was in a huddle every single day, and it just allowed for information every single day to flow through the organization. That was a really critical component for us to allow 
for communicating. Then we had a monthly mandatory meeting. We had a quarterly giant all hands on deck, very organized firm-wide meeting. And these were became ingrained in our culture and really allowed for a lot of flow of great information. Good recommendation in the book for reading material on meeting rhythm, really. A Death by Meeting, Patrick Lencioni. I've read that and, and it covers all of this. So if people want to dive deep on just meeting rhythms and, and get on track, that's a good book to pick up. His book's a great book and you can't, meetings have to be disciplined. They have to, they have, to have a starting time and they have to have an ending time and an agenda. Yeah, the agenda is the important piece, I think. If you don't send an agenda in advance, I think that gives people a, a good reason not to go. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, it's really what you're beginning to do. What I love about this disciplined meeting rhythm, meetings start on time, they end on time, they have a, an agenda that's circulated in advance, a lot of decks in organized presentation in these meetings. You're beginning to build a disciplined organization. Duke basketball, they play a disciplined game of ball. You you need you need to start playing a disciplined game of business. Greg, when you went through this transition of flipping the pyramid with Ambrose and probably having a lot more success, what what was the outcome? You know, what could people expect if they start thinking about their business like the way you have? From the more macro level, I like to explain that that getting my company from you know zero to let's say five six million dollars in EBITDA it was exhausting. It was brute force, and I know a lot of the people around me really didn't enjoy the journey. I was treating people in a way that I just I, I felt wasn't right. I didn't feel good. Yeah. about how I was behaving every day. Command and control just doesn't didn't feel right to me. When we made this transition, and again, at this, it probably took us two, three years to really fully make this transition. We then went from five, six million dollars in EBITDA to close to $20 million <laughs> in wow. EBITDA with ease, with aplomb, with grace. It was, it was actually, it was so much easier and so much more fun you can't even compare the two experiences. The, the second experience was way more enjoyable, a lot more fun, not, not only for me, for, for everybody in the company. We got up to 120 some odd employees and we were, everybody was getting to the top of Maslow's pyramid. Hmm. Um, everybody was bringing their left brain, their right brain to work every day. Everybody was engaged you know, moving, moving the ball forward, scoring points. And it was fun to win as a team. I love it, Greg. This has been so, so fun. And I appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Your book is flip the pyramid, how any organization can create a workforce that is engaged, aligned, empowered, and on fire. Where can people learn more about you, what you're up to, or get the book if they want to? Thanks, Brandon. The best place to learn more about me is my personal website, www.gregslamowitz.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And my book is on Amazon, 
just put in my name or flip the pyramid, the, the book will come up. There's a Kindle version, a print version, and I recently released an audio version. Excellent. My guest today has been Greg Slamowitz. Greg, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Brandon. Have a great day. 